Hello and welcome to episode three of the ACN podcast, a podcast by nurses for nurses to start conversations that matter. Today's episode is a conversation with Sue Hegarty. Sue is a registered nurse with over 25 years experience. After various roles, Sue began a role as a registered nurse in a cancer centre in the year 2000 and has grown and flourished in this specialty ever since. She is currently the Chief of Support Programs at Ovarian Cancer Australia. She was recently announced as the HESTA 2022 Nurse of the Year. This was for her advocacy and support of women with ovarian cancer and her leadership in developing Australia's first telehealth program for ovarian cancer. Today, we discuss cancer nursing, the importance of teams and nursing in advocacy. Good morning and thank you, Sue Hegarty. Great to have you here. Thanks so much for having me on, Andrea, and taking the time to to do this podcast. I really appreciate it. Great, Sue. And uh, Sue is another one of my victims of LinkedIn stalking. I've been looking for wonderful people to interview on the podcast and came across Sue's profile. And yeah, really excited to share what Sue has to say. So to kick it off, we'll begin as always with Sue why did you become a nurse? Thanks, Andrea. That's a great question. My mum was a nurse. And as far as I can remember, that was the only career I was ever going to have was being a nurse. And mum worked in aged care. So my best friend, Gab, and I used to go along, you know, when mum was at work and, you know, chat to the oldies and play bingo and help serve out the tea and coffee. And I think I just had that real love of caring and seeing, you know, my mum in that role. So it was, I don't remember a time that I wasn't going to be a nurse, really. It was always something I was going to do. Amazing. Runs in the family. (laughs) Yeah. And do you think seeing that caring side of nursing and having that time with patients as an observer of the field and then getting onto the floor and going, hang on, there's all these other things that I have to do. Was that a bit of a difference for you or did it sort of come naturally? Well, I worked as I was doing my nursing training in aged care. And I think, you know, it's probably one of the hardest jobs I've ever done in terms of workload. So I think actually by the time I started my placements and working clinically, I had that real feeling of that juggle, you know, that you have when you're nursing. And it's probably one of the reasons I've moved into this area is being able to do more of the psychosocial support stuff is probably the part that I loved the most. And, you know, that's why my career's moved in that direction of working in, in psychosocial support, particularly in my roles at the Cancer Council and now at Ovarian Cancer Australia. And I feel like I've found my place, you know, in my career at this type of work is the work I love doing the most. Excellent. And we'll definitely delve deeper into that topic a bit later. But before we do, can you give us a sort of background of what areas you've worked in and across that time about a patient that touched your heart or changed your practice? Yes, so I've worked really in oncology since I graduated from nursing. So I did my my first year out at John Fortner Hospital and went through all the different medical and surgical. And then I was asked to do a shift on the oncology ward. And I was like, oh, you know, I was only quite young at the time. And I was like, oh, I don't know that I could do that. And, you know, because people are dying and they're really ill. And actually it sparked a real passion for me working in oncology you know back really in my first year after my grad year and 
So then, you know, I've worked clinically in a number of the, the hospitals in Melbourne and then travelled over to the UK and worked in the Royal Marsden Hospital over there, which is one of their big oncology hospitals and learnt a lot there. It's a very evidence-based hospital and they had, you know, guidelines for absolutely everything. You know, how do you dress an IV, timing of removing things. And I think it was a really great grounding for me. And I also worked for the Macmillan Cancer Service over there doing sort of supportive care in one of their um, they're quite far advanced over there in terms of, you know, complementary medicine being available within the hospital system. And certainly the Macmillan model had that. And then I worked um, at the Christie Hospital in uh, Manchester and that had on site a complementary therapy department. So, you know, this is going back now close to 20 years ago and, and that was very much part of their health system over there at the time. So it really sparked my interest doing that work early in my career. And then I worked at the Cancer Council running two programs there, the Living with Cancer Education Program and the, the Communication Skills Training Program. And, you know, it really sort of sparked my interest in, you know, how we've got to support clinicians to feel really confident in their communication skills because it can decrease burnout. And from there, I went to the Austin for a couple of years working on an aged care, palliative care implementation project. And then I've been at Ovarian Cancer Australia as the chief of support programs for the last six years. Amazing. And interesting, it just starts off with one placement, one opportunity in an area, and then you've stuck with it for yes. the rest of your career. And did you have something that you thought you would be doing in nursing or were you open to seeing whatever happened in your career? Yeah, interestingly, I thought I wanted to do paediatrics. That's what I remember at the end um, of my graduate program but I was sort of always glad I didn't do that because I think I would have found it really hard in the long term looking although I'm sure pediatric nurses you know like people can say oh, I was working in cancer hard I I've never found it to be um, a hard profession like you certainly you know you have your tears someday it's and you know you do see people die of the disease but you know, I think that opportunity to be with people at their most vulnerable and their sickest is such a privilege. So, um, but yes, interestingly, at the start, I thought I would like to work in paediatrics, but then um, actually I missed a grad year at the children's. I didn't get it. And I always thought, oh, it might've just been that blessing in disguise. It wasn't going to be my pathway for nursing. Yeah, almost a bit of um, nursing fate. Yeah, absolutely. <laughs> That's how I saw it actually. And funny you say, you know, paediatric nurses might think working in cancer nursing is difficult. There really is that across nursing. And I guess you just come to find your area and your why for being there. Every area has problems, but those problems, you know, aren't big enough to deter you from the practice. Absolutely. And so can you tell us more about your role at Ovarian Cancer Australia and what a regular work day or even work week, if you can sum it up, looks like for you? Thanks, Andrea. I mean, I've been at OCA now six years. And when I started, there was three of us, Anne-Marie, Haley, and myself. And Haley still works for us as a research manager. And now we're a team of 25. So we've really undergone enormous growth, particularly over the last three years with the launching of our TEAL support program. That's been a, a really significant change in our business of running the 
case management based support for women with ovarian cancer so they get their access to their own ovarian cancer nurse consultant in the past you know women didn't necessarily always get access to an ovarian cancer nurse specialist some of the major treatment centers have amazing um, gynecological nurses as part of the team but not all so really um, we got that funding through the government to launch our case management program so we've really expanded since then so you know an average day for me is really varied so this morning we had our multidisciplinary team meeting where the nurses our social workers, psychologists got on the, the call and we discussed, you know, new women and, and what, you know, services we're implementing, what's happening at the treatment team perspective. Then, you know, I've been doing some work, you know, on our major donors and looking at doing some, you know, research advocacy, looking also often at media opportunities for us to, to talk about the work that we're doing and to promote our services to women. I'll often be talking to one of the team during the day about a complex case. Um, yesterday, um, I was having a meeting with one of the pharmaceutical companies about a new drug that's showing some promise in ovarian cancer that's not listed here. So we're sort of looking at, you know, will it be coming for listing within Australia and, you know, having those conversations because, you know, unfortunately, you know, it can take some time for, for drugs to get listed. So, um, you know, we, we look to identify where there's opportunities to have conversations with the pharmaceutical companies about drugs that are maybe being listed overseas and, and what's the, the timeline for listing in Australia. So it's a really varied role. I mean, it's just an incredible team of really passionate people who love coming to work every day. You know, one of our biggest priorities is that we make sure the team are, you know, are looked after and are feeling good so that they can do their greatest work. So we do have a, a psychologist that debriefs the team once a month and little things like, you know, everyone's just bought in their perfume from home and we've got dry shampoo and, you know, it's just little things to sort of, yeah, make the day more fun and to be able to sort of pamper yourself between a call and have a nice spritz of perfumes. You know, we have to look after ourselves, you know, I think across nursing and all health professional areas, you know, it takes its toll. So we do, that's why we have that sort of 4.30 check-in. So the team who are working remotely can debrief in, you know, we have our wellbeing program because I think we know that, you know, within health, there is a high chance of burnout. So we really try and um, work with that. And, and each morning, you know, we check in as a team quickly. How is everyone you know, what's on for the day, you know, and, and really invite that conversation. If, if anyone's having a hard day or if one of their, their women's died, that they can share that with the team, because we know that this work, you know, it, it, it can be intense. So it's really important to be able to share and debrief as a team. And I think that's really um, prevented our team getting burnt out by having those real strategies to prevent rather than just sort of treat the burnout. And I think particularly, you know, anyone that went through those lockdowns, it was incredibly harsh, but, you know, being at home by yourself, having some pretty intense conversations, we really had to lean in, into each other as a team to support each other. And I think that's why we've emerged well from it because we, we actively supported each other. Sounds like you're working for the dream team. I'm jealous. <laughs> Can you give us some context as to how Ovarian Cancer Australia or OCA came to be? 
It's a great question, Andrea. So yeah, the five-year survival rate is only 48%. And one of the founders, Sheila Lee, was um, a woman with ovarian cancer and um, felt that, you know, there wasn't enough tension on the disease, there weren't enough treatments. And, you know, she knew that she was going to die of her disease. So she did a lot of advocacy in her time and um, her partner, uh, Grace Lee, still works um, on supports um, the organisation. You know, he was involved in our Teal Giving Day this year. And, you know, I think Sheila's legacy has really stayed on within the business of that, the voices of the women and their families. And we are a very consumer-led organisation. So we'll, everything we develop comes out of what do the women want? So our consumer surveys told us that need for, for case management. And that's why we went off and pursued the government funding because the women told us that's a service that, that they would access. So, you know, it, it really came about from that feeling of wanting to improve things for women. And, and we've worked with the sector and with women to develop a, a national action plan for the priorities in research for ovarian cancer. You know, it's survival rates low for a number of reasons. You know, there isn't an early detection test, you know, like this breast screen, which is absolutely fantastic. So that's one of the, the real challenges. And also, you know, being a, a less common cancer, there hasn't been as much research spending into the disease. However, um, Ovarian Cancer Australia and our CEO, Jane Hill, advocated for the first ever ovarian cancer targeted funding round through the Medical Research Future Fund of $20 million. So, you know, that was a really amazing outcome. And we've, you know, really delighted that those research projects are, are happening now and will, you know, change the landscape for the future. But you know, having been at the organisation now six years, I think there is a lot of hope on the horizon. There has been some new targeted treatments that are coming in and not all women are eligible, but over time, you know, we will hopefully um, ensure that all women have access to targeted treatment if they've got more aggressive disease or if they have a relapse. So, you know, I think there is hope on the horizon for this disease. And, you know, there's just the most dedicated group of researchers and clinicians. And I think being a, 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 a less common cancer, it's a very well networked um, group that are looking at this disease from all angles. Right, great. And when thinking about reducing the prevalence of cancer or managing living with cancer, it's sort of broken into the key things that you've mentioned. So prevention, early detection, diagnosis, uh, treatment and support, and of course, research and education overarch all of these things. What do you see is the importance of having a nurse and the, the yourself as a nurse in the role that you're doing, doing media, doing advocacy, talking to other, you know, pharmaceuticals, areas that you don't usually see nurses working in, but what is the strength of having a nurse doing these things? You know, I think it's having worked with the women and their families and really seeing the immense suffering that, that women have, you know, if their disease is recurrent. And we know that in ovarian cancer, most women um, are diagnosed with stage three, four disease, you know, that it is often detected quite late. And that, you know, up to 70% of women with advanced cancer will relapse within three years of diagnosis. So they live with that sort of fear of the, the cancer coming back. And that can be incredibly 
distressing. So, you know, I think that having a nurse leading the advocacy, you know, you, you've spoken to those women, you you have so much passion to make a difference. You know, when we heard about this drug at one of the conferences, it's like, well, we know that group of women don't have a lot of treatment options, you know, if their disease reoccurs. And if there is this drug showing promise, we want that drug here for these women. And I think you've heard their stories and and their grief and their family's grief and their sadness. And it just puts, a, a, I guess, a real fire in your belly to make an enormous difference. And, you know, our CEO, Jane, is, you know, so incredibly passionate, such a good listener of the women's voices. And I think we're a really united team to make a, a real difference to women with the disease. And I think as an organisation, we've made straight, you know, great strides, but, you know, there's still a lot more work to be done. And that's, you know, why I every day just love coming to work and love working with the team. And, you know, it's incredible to work with a group where everyone's aligned and, and really passionate. It, it, like you said earlier, it is a bit like working with the dream team. Great to hear. Obviously, the organisation has a clear vision and you need that vision to unite the team. You've highlighted the importance of nurses working in this uh, advocacy and patient education. And you've told us how you ended up in this area. But can you shed some light on the transition? How do you go from a nurse on the floor, heavily clinically focused, knowing you've got the passion and the knowledge and the experience to advocate? How do you develop those skills um, and abilities in the middle for that to translate? I think that's a great question, Andrew. And I remember going from my first clinical role, you know, this was back in the day where you always wrote your notes, you know, there was no electronic medical records. And, you know, you'd be often writing them on your knee or trying to, you know, maybe find a little bit of a bench. And my first job, you know, where I had, and it was at the Austin and we had this, you know, little office I think it was a converted storeroom but it was like having our own office and our own sort of like you know maybe meter of bench space was just so novel after working clinically but I think to answer your question you know it's it's working with great mentors I think has really helped me and looking to what other organizations have achieved and talking to people who've been working in the sector for a long time doing this type of work. I mean, I think I had that slow role from being sort of more clinically focused to doing um, post-acute care discharge planning. I did some of that work at the Austin and then like doing some of that work in the UK, supporting people. So I sort of slowly moved into this sector opposed to one clear leap because I do think that it is quite a shift in thinking. And actually, it, now that you, you've asked me the question, you know, I think when you're clinically focused, you get some outcomes that's first you know, the day you do it, you see the results of your work. And I remember when I went into project work, I was like, gosh, I don't know if I'm doing this right. I can't see the results. But you see that six months, eight months down the line, the work you do today sometimes doesn't really show its outcomes for a much longer. So that was probably my biggest shift of not that more instant reward that you got working clinically of being able to really help people and make a real difference on the day. So that was probably the biggest shift in my thinking required. Great. That's a really interesting insight. And I guess it also highlights that there are different ways to measure outcomes and success in patient care. And sometimes we don't clinically think of those bigger picture things and then vice versa. When you're working in a project role, you don't see the immediate patient care roles, but a good opportunity to remind ourselves that there are different ways for patient outcomes to be measured. 
Okay, so so you were involved in developing Australia's first telehealth program for ovarian cancer with OCA. Can you share the experience of this from idea to conception? Absolutely. You know, we're just delighted that we've got a telehealth-based program with ovarian cancer nurse consultants. And we got the concept, I mean, you know, women through our consumer surveys would be saying, you know, we want a breast care nurse. And obviously ovarian cancer is a lower incidence cancer than breast care. So having nurses in all small towns that, you know, is quite tricky with um, ovarian cancer. So we were looking at models that would sort of be available to women across the country. And we heard about Movember were running a program for people with prostate cancer. And Cyril Dixon, our now director of uh, support programs, was actually running that um, for Movember. So we went over and met with them and then, you know, heard all about the program and how it worked and then looked to, to model that in ovarian cancer and took a proposal to the federal government and got our initial pilot funding of $1.6 million. And that moment was just unbelievable for us at OCA to receive that funding. And from there, we were very, very fortunate to be able to recruit Cyril, a very experienced nurse who's worked in a lot of different settings to come over and establish that program. And having done that before in prostate, you know, there were a lot of lessons learned and, and from there, we've grown to now supporting just under 600 women on the program and we'll be growing our reach moving forward. But, you know, just some really beautiful quotes from women around what it means to be on the program and to be able to talk about those very intimate topics that impact women with ovarian cancer, I think you know, it's just having that continuity of care and building up that very trusting relationship. And, you know, I remember one of the ladies said, you know, she could talk to her nurse, die about everything. And she said, who else could I say? How do you die of ovarian cancer? What's that like? And I think it's a real opportunity for women to share all those fears and, and anxieties. And we do know that anxiety and depression is really high for women with ovarian cancer, you know, fear of occurrence. So, you know, it's really important they've got that person that they've got a trusting relationship with. And as I said, we can then refer them on to our psychosocial team of psychologists and grief counsellors. So, you know, they've got an integrated service really and linking back into their treatment team because we know the vital support they're getting in hospitals by their clinical team. And, you know, we really lean into that time in between appointments where, you know, they're, they're not seeing their, their clinicians. We've worked with Professor Patsy Yates out of the Queensland um, University of Technology who's done our evaluation that's really demonstrated uh, what it is that women are getting out of the program. So, we've, you know, we're just delighted with it and want to get out to more women and encourage any nurses or clinicians listening to this podcast to contact Ovarian Cancer Australia if they're looking after women with ovarian cancer. That's great. Definitely useful resources for nurses out there. I do want to ask, though, um, and because it is a new program, you're in that evolving stage and, and learning as you go and you have had all this positive feedback. Has there been any, any challenges in the background that your team have had to work around, work between to still get these positive results? I think that's a really good question, Andrea. And I think as we've been rolling it out, we've been constantly improving our systems, you know, to recruit more women. That's probably been the biggest challenge in the pandemic is that 
not so many women are going, you know, into treatment centres over the pandemic and therefore, you know, the opportunities for clinicians to refer. I think that's probably been one of the bigger challenges, but we've, you know, especially with the world opening up again, we've been able to, our nurses get out and meet with more of the clinicians. But I think we really benefited from, I mean, Cyril happened to be in the market for a role, like it felt very fortunate for us to have probably the only person in the country who'd rolled out a national telehealth service in cancer. So it felt very, because I remember when we got the grant, I was thinking, okay, this is going to be tricky to recruit the, the program manager because, you know, it's fairly novel and just out of sheer good fortune, he was available. And, and I think that's helped us avoid, you know, because he learned a lot in implementing it and running it um, at Movember. So we were really fortunate to have that experience going in and, you know, what are the effective ways of managing the program and having good relationships with the clinicians. Awesome. Amazing work there. And one of the final topics I wanted to talk to you about, Sue, is palliative care. Obviously an important topic in cancer nursing in general, but also to ovarian cancer. It's a practice of nursing that we're evolving and constantly talking about. And I was just wondering what changes you've seen in this area throughout your career? That's a really good question. You know, I did a short sort of stint um, working in a palliative care unit in my early days of nursing. And obviously working cancer for my career, I have worked with people who are palliative at, at many times. You know, I guess my biggest learnings has been, you know, it's such an expertise and we need to ensure that, you know, people who have, you know, have cancer or other life-limiting illnesses have really good access to palliative care, you know, so that they get really good symptom management, that they have those conversations with the palliative care team about end of life and advanced care planning. And we know that talking about death and dying can be a real taboo. And I think uh, having palliative care where those conversations are opened up and and women and their families have that chance to talk about, uh, you know, death and dying is really important because we know that it can cause a lot of existential distress. And certainly our team, we do um, work with Professor um, Peter Martin, who's a palliative care physician, uh, who's a lead really in this country around communication skills training and particularly around topics around death of dying and disease progression. We do communication skills training with him, with the team to ensure that we're having those conversations and opening up that opportunity for women to talk about their fears and their family members' fears about dying. And um, I think that's probably my biggest reflection is that it is a really specialised area. And as people working with people who are dying, we need to keep up with those skills and also, you know, refer. And I think, you know, having access to palliative care is vital for anyone, you know, who's who's living with a life-limiting illness that needs that symptom management and, and support. So I think investment in palliative care and particularly into, you know, the aged care setting is, is really important because I think it, you know, requires highly skilled clinicians. So, you know, women on our tier support program, you know, will sometimes go under community palliative care as well as be under the tier support and we work collaboratively and we often facilitate those referrals as well, you know, when it looks like 
like, you know, that, that, that is the right timing. And certainly I think palliative care has an enormous role in symptom management, even outside of that sort of end of life stage, you know, that many people with cancer will have some really difficult symptoms, you know, because of their treatment. And I think palliative care nurses have a lot to offer and palliative care doctors at that time as well for symptom management. Sure. Thank you for that. Definitely great to have your 20 years summed up in 40 seconds. <laughs> so appreciate that. Do you have any tips, Sue, for nurses who may not, you know, necessarily be specialised or have a lot of experience in this area, but any tips or resources in, in how they can, as a nurse, be more comfortable to facilitate these conversations of death and dying or even recognising when palliative care is needed for the patient? I think that that's a really good question, Andrea. And within cancer, there is a, a website called Cancer Learning that has some modules around communication skills. So, you know, I, I guess my learning from working in that area was the data is pretty strong. If you feel more comfortable, you have less burnout and, and there is data around, you know, you can shorten consultation times with effective communication skills. So I'd really encourage people to, because I think, you know, I know when I did my nursing degree, obviously quite a few years ago now, like, we didn't get that very specific communication skills training. And yet, you know, we're having some really complex conversations. So, you know, I'd really encourage people to skill up and, and have that conversation with their manager around. I know the Cancer Council Victoria still runs communication skills training and there are other services throughout the country. So I would encourage people to speak to their, their leadership team around what opportunities there are for upskilling and I think to just be honest and say some of these conversations are really tough and our nurses who are very experienced you know been doing it for a very long time will still have those conversations they're like oh did I say the right thing how could I have said this differently you know we're constantly learning and evolving I think in this area but I think there are quite a few taboos you know sexuality death and dying, you know, even finances is something we're making sure we screen women for because that's often something that can be causing a lot of distress for people that they won't bring it up unless you do. So we're really, um, you know, using a really good validated tool on our TIL support program where we, you know, go through and check for all of those um, issues that can be problematic for women and actually actively asking, you know, and we know that from our data, 48% of women have worries about their finances so it's important to ask that and to then you know refer on as needed to help support the women and their families through that time yeah wonderful thank you for that definitely some practical tips for nurses to take away from the podcast which is something that I'm aiming for our audience so great to have your input on that and we are coming to the end of our conversation Sue and probably something I should have done at the start but I've deliberately left it at the end and that is to say a big congratulations on your recent announcement as the nurse of the year for 2022 at the thank Hester you. Awards well done thanks so much it's such a great <laughs> honor I, you know I feel very humbled receiving it knowing particularly how hard you know nurses and healthcare workers have worked since the pandemic uh, arrived. Yeah, I felt very humbled receiving it. There was some amazing nurses, you know, that were also nominated. And I think, you know, I feel really proud of the work that OCA's done to support women and the incredible nurses and team that I work within. So I feel like, although I stood there to accept the award, it's really the organization's award because, 
every day the team's working so hard to ensure that women, you know, our vision is that, you know, no woman walks alone and, and really that's what we're working towards through these programs. Yeah, it was a great honour to accept it on behalf of all the team that I work with. And that's great to hear, yeah, although an individual award, you really do bring that team mindset with you and well done for being the chosen representative of the team to accept that award. (laughs) Thanks so much, Andrea. It was, yeah, it was a really wonderful night celebrating. Well, that does bring us to the end. And again, I thank you for taking the time out of your day. It's been a real privilege and a great pleasure to chat with you. Thanks so much, Andrea, for the opportunity. It's been lovely to chat with you too. Thanks for tuning in and a final thought to leave you with. Is there someone on your team who you think could use some recognition? Can you nominate them for an award within your organisation? Or can you give them some praise the next time you see them? I'll catch you next time. Don't forget to reach out on social media or send a question via ACN Neo.